Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 960. To begin today's program, David Lorelo welcomes Craig Albernaz, bullpen and catching coach for the San Francisco Giants. We hear about what it is like to be part of such a large and impressive coaching staff, and how that helps with the student-teacher ratio at the player level. We also get insight on things like just how Logan Webb is so nasty, coaching players that he used to call teammates like Alex Cobb, Jeremy Hellickson, and Jake McGee, and what it's like to work with Brian Bannister. Danny is an absolute stud. How he talks about pitching, breaks down pitching, digests pitching, everything encompassing pitching is just next level. It's really a joy to be around him, and the way he delivers the message makes it so simple for the players, and it could be complex, but how he breaks it down for him makes it digestible, and it's very actionable for the guys to take it to the mound. In the second half, Ben Clemens and Eric Longenhagen sit down to catch up on their off-season projects. They talk about things like Ben's focus on pitchers who throw four-seamers and sinkers, the challenges of quantifying deceptiveness, Eric's work on prospect lists, and Ben's Sabre nomination. Additionally, the duo go in-depth on just how challenging it can be to evaluate pitching prospects nowadays given how truly inconsistent and unpredictable they can be. Pitching is tough because it's so easy in some respects to quantify people's stuff. You know, the data portion of it does give you a much clearer picture of it. Like it represents a bigger piece of the player evaluation pie than the data piece does for hitters. And so in some ways it's easier to understand the pitching population when you're prospecting. And then at other times, like they get hurt and they develop very quickly because the player dev tools that we have to augment pitching are just further ahead than hitters by like, you know, a long shot. And so like in that way, it is much, much more difficult to project the pitchers here on the scouting side. Yeah. But before we get to these excellent conversations, I must issue you my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the best place to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. Fangraphs members enjoy ad-free browsing at blazing fast speeds and also get to enjoy supporting the site, helping us to do everything we do. We truly could not do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest is Craig Albernaz, bullpen and catching coach for the San Francisco Giants. Craig, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, David, thanks for having me. Love love reading all the work on Fangraphs. It's one of my favorite sites to go to for baseball content. So it's definitely uh, an honor and pleasure to be to be on today. Love hearing that. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to start, Craig, by saying that I am extremely jealous because as we speak, you're at a minor league mini camp in Arizona where I'm sure the weather is beautiful. And I am in your home state of Massachusetts where we just got two feet of snow. So <laughs> uh, yeah, jealous is really the only word. I've done a lot of shoveling in the, in the last few days. Uh, I bet you have. I mean, everyone back home is definitely jealous that I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona right now, and it's sunny, not a cloud in the sky. My parents' house got over two feet, and actually, where we live in Pennsylvania now, my wife and kids, we got a little over, probably right around eight inches of snow, so I was shoveling myself on Saturday, but knowing that I was flying out to Arizona to see the sun be at the baseball field on on Monday. So it's definitely a step that I use to my advantage to make everyone back home jealous. It's working. Absolutely working. (laughs) You know, Craig, you are uh, part of a big league coaching staff that totals, if I'm not mistaken, 15 people. Yeah, give or take. Give or take. Um, (laughs) I'm guessing that the coaches room at Oracle Park 
might be pretty big, but where do other teams put you when you're on the road? You know, I've been at a lot of older ballparks where the coaches' rooms look like shoeboxes. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I think, um, I mean, at Oracle, you know, they, they had the space. They had to get creative with, with some lockers. Um, you know, obviously, we have Alyssa Nacken, who's a stud. She's awesome. You know, she's on our staff. So, you know, they had to make a woman's, a woman's locker room, and they did a great job there. And they definitely got creative with the space in Oracle. And as far as the rest of the league, I mean, with, with COVID and, you know, being rampant in 2020 and then having to deal with it last year, you know, there was certain protocols they had to make, especially in 2020 with spacing, how many people can be in a room, all that. So credit to the visiting guys up and down the league across the landscape. They did a great job of accommodating us in different rooms, making sure that we had, you know, just like the little stuff, you know, water, food, snacks in each locker room. So we're not having to migrate and make a trek to go get food. So they have, to answer your question is the, the clubhouse staff and facilities across the league definitely had to get creative. I feel like with everyone, but especially with our staff, just to accommodate us, they did a great job. And as for the coaching staff itself, why so many coaches on Gabe Kapler's staff? I think it just goes to the student teacher ratio, you know, just more, more students, more resources. I mean, more teachers for the students, um, more resources for, for the players to go to and, to get their needs fed. I, I mean, it's tough to ask a one hitting coach to facilitate all the hitters on, on the team and also up and down the organization as far as if, you know, facilitate as hitting philosophy or pitching philosophy, whatever the case may be, you know, the more people you have on staff and each department helps navigate those, those challenges and especially getting information across to players, um, you know, Every player needs to be coached differently, and they also learn differently. So when you have more more voices in the room, um, it just it's easier to get the message across. But it's also challenging in some instances because there is a lot of people in there, and that's why the the communication has to be clear, open, and honest and direct with the players, and also with our staffs, you know, with each other to make sure everyone's on the same page and our staff and and Cap has done a great job with Farhan and Scott constructing this staff. It's a it's an absolute joy to work with. It's helped me grow as a as a coach and also as a person being around these these great people. And it's just a credit to Cap and how he's been a leader of us and leader in the clubhouse and the the culture he set for us to follow. And you know we we think we try to help the players. And if we don't have and answer, there is usually someone in the room that can help us navigate and try to find a way to get that answer. And what specifically, Craig, are your responsibilities? For a lot of clubs, the bullpen coach is essentially the assistant pitching coach. You know, the Giants have an actual assistant pitching coach as well as the director of pitching. Yeah, so we actually have a pitching coach, director of pitching, and then also J.P. Martinez, who is our assistant pitching coach. Brian Bannister is a director of pitching, and Andrew Bailey is our pitching coach. So myself, I'm in the bullpen. Like you said, I'm also the catching, the catching coach. I handle all things catching, you know, all, all the physical aspects and also assist in the preparation for the catches, the game planning, what goes into their everyday routine. And then like on the pitching side, it's more of 
be piggybacking on what the pitching guys are doing with the pitches. So they they take the lead pitching, all things pitching, and I'm there to to help them double down on any certain messages, cues, tweaks, adjustments that need to be made for the relievers as they're in the bullpen. You know, I assist them there. And then also, like we talked about with the catches game planning, but we also kind of collaborate as far as, you know, the pitches, pitch usage, attack plans, what works for them, diving into the opponent's hitters, how we want to attack them, you know, the, that game planning perspective. So there is a lot, a lot that goes into my day to day. And then also last year, we, in the minor league system, we did not have a catching coordinator um, on the minor league side. So I also, you know, took on that role per se, as far as, you know, making sure the minor league guys had some type of direction as far, you know, as receiving, blocking, giving them some type of feedback from from the various issues that they have. We should talk about your director of pitching. How would you describe Brian Bannister? This might be a long answer, I fear. It is. It could be a long answer. I'm going to try to condense it and keep it short, but Danny is an absolute stud. How he talks about pitching, breaks down pitching, digests pitching, everything encompassing pitching is just next level. It's really a joy to be around him. And the way he delivers the message makes it so simple for the players. And it could be complex, but how he breaks it down for them makes it digestible and is very actionable for the guys to take it to the mound. You know, he does a great job of weaponizing us on the boots on the ground, you know, with Andrew Bailey, JP, myself, as, as far as what types of pitches work for each pitcher. And he gives clarity in that aspect. And he is nonstop with his work, his, his work ethic behind the scenes, bringing all types of information to us. It's really, it's, it's really a pleasure to be around him. But yeah, that's, that's try to keep that as concise as I can with Banny because he, we could talk about him for a while, but he really is a game changer for us. Somebody else, Craig, that we should definitely talk about is Logan Webb. Why is he so good? Because Logan Webb is very, very good. Yeah, Logan Webb is nasty. I think that's it. Webby's just nasty. And it, just like any young pitcher, there's a maturation process of, of what, they're, what they are, what they could be, and what they're trying to be. And he took some great strides last year, maturity, really get, getting confidence, and then also taking ownership of his own development and how to attack hitters. And credit to like we just talked about Brian Bannister and and our pitching guys with you know JP and Bales really really pushing Webby all through 2020 and last year to get him to where he needs to be but I mean his fastball how it moves how it plays in the zone is elite his breaking ball his sweeper is nasty and it comes out of the same tunnel and his changeup his changeup is filthy just to his sell on it you know, the the horizontal movement, it's like everything you want. He checks a lot of boxes. But what really made the strides last year, in my opinion, with Webby was just his relentless attack of the strike zone. You know, that's a message with our all of our pitches. We want them to attack the strike zone. But Webby was just relentless on throwing all through all of his weapons in the strike zone, making hitters, make decision on pitches. And it just helped him induce weak contact, miss bats, pitch deep into games. And he really stepped up for us down the stretch. Speaking of change-ups, Alex Cobb is on the Giants staff. You actually caught Alex when the two of you were playing <laughs> together 
in the Tampa Bay Rays system. You also caught Jeremy Hellickson. Just how similar or different were those two changeups? Yeah, it's it's funny how this baseball world comes full circle. You know, we got Alex Cobb, who, like you like you mentioned, we both signed together in 2006. We were in Princeton, West Virginia, in the Appy League together. So it's just great. It's great to have him. Great dude. But yeah, he has he has a nasty split change that he's really developed throughout his career in the minor leagues and especially at the big league level and how he's been able to throw it at any count, strike the ball in the zone with a lot of depth to it. It's really, really a nasty pitch. And then Helly and catching Jeremy Hellickson, it was such a an eye-opening experience to see how he needed to throw that changeup. You know, because early in his career, he had a really good fastball. I think a lot of people forget when Helly was in his early years coming up through the minors, like he he had some velocity. He was, you know, mid to upper 90s with his heater. He had a pretty good breaking ball. And then in 2008, he got hit around the yard pretty good and he needed to to develop a changeup. And I just happened just to get called up to double A from high A where Jelly, where, uh, Helly was like uh, a month after him. And our pitching coach at the time, Neil Allen, sat me down and was let me know that I was going to catch Helly all of his thoughts moving forward for the rest of the year. And they really wanted to establish his changeup. So that was, that was a time where we had to really, really sell on this changeup, pick the usage up heavy on this changeup, which is now the normal. The norm now is to go in heavy, heavy off-speed usage across the league. But at that time, we just needed to do it to develop his pitch. And, and the way his became nasty was just the same the same cell, the same arm speed, the same spin as his four seam fastball, but it just it just killed the just killed the velo. So it just gave hitters fits because it looked just like his fastball and guys just couldn't couldn't make that adjustment. You caught Jake McGee in the minor leagues as well. How different is Jake now than he was then? <laughs> I did catch Jake McGee and it's awesome that he's on the he's in the bullpen as well. We're actually we're double A roommates on the road and in 2010 so again the baseball world goes full circle um but yeah i know mcgee mcgee really owned what he really is and what how his arm works and how his stuff plays and you know for a long time he was fighting to throw a to throw a really good breaking ball and you know develop a change up as a starter because he was started going his whole time in the minor leagues and once he realized that he was going to be reliever he really took ownership of I need to establish my fastball where it plays best in the zone and then just develop an off-speed pitch to pair with that because his fastball is has elite characteristics and plays really well you know he and then as he kind of developed at the big league level and throughout his career he just and to his credit he just kept on being curious and exploring how he could get better and he was never satisfied and you know, he, there's a, he did a lot of work with the Dodgers when he was over there to fine tune his craft and, and what his, where his pitches should play in the zone. And he just piggybacked on that with us last year. And he's very self-aware of what he needs to do and how he goes about his day to day is getting his body ready, his prep routine, all that is, is veteran status. And that trickled down through, through our whole bullpen is how he carried himself and got ready for the game. And he was a huge factor. Uh, on how a bullpen performed last year, not because he was really good, because he was, and he was a reliever of the month, and you know, and well deserved. But you know, he made an impact on the culture of the bullpen, just how he goes about his business from day to day. 
You mentioned pitch characteristics. I assume that is a pretty big part of what Banny does and what Andrew does and what you're involved in is is figuring out just w- what works for the guys on your staff. Yeah, and I, I think that's a I think that's across the landscape of the game right now with all the the data that is accessible and every team has and you know internal models like whatever that looks like for for each team, but. You know, I, I think it's just a just a nice little buzzword as like to what actually your ball does in flight as it goes to home plate. So once guys can realize what the ball actually does and how it pairs with other pitches, like that's how you kind of shape your arsenal. And that's something that that we always look at as far as, you know, we want to make sure our guys are knowing what what works best. And that just goes to, you know, it's just another kind of hot topic and catchword right now is phrase is putting guys in the best chance to succeed. And that's what it is right now is giving guys and weaponizing the guys on the mound to, to know like what to throw and what not to throw at certain times. When you and the rest of the staff looks at the pitch characteristics of all the guys, is there anybody that stands out as being particularly unique in what their ball does? Yeah, Tyler Rogers. <laughs> I mean, when you throw from down there, submarine from down under, yeah, it does completely different um, on a break shot or what shows up in TrackMan or Hawkeye. It's it's on a complete other other landscape of things. But um, yeah, I mean, I think all the guys, all the guys at this level, at the big league level, have have unique characteristics. That's what makes them really good. You know, whether it be Gosman split that jumps out. You know, all of Webby's pitches. Alex Wood, Tony Discofani, like all the, all of these guys have have unique unique stuff to the arsenal and what their ball does. So it's just it's just monitoring monitoring them on what their ball does and making sure we give them some guardrails of of what we're looking for and make sure they kind of all their pitches stay stay within those parameters. Let's uh, touch briefly, Craig, on uh, your own pitching career. You know, you caught, I think it's 350 some minor league games. You also made 14 pitching appearances, almost all of them in AAA. <laughs> I see a little Shohei Otani in there, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. I was I was a two-way guy before the two-way guy. You know, jo- Josh Koch, who was with the Rays for a long time, and now he's with the Minnesota Twins, used to give me, used to give me some grief about that, about me pitching and being a two-way guy. But yeah, no, at the time in, in AAA, there's always mop-up guys, especially at that level with, you know, the shuttle going back and forth up to the big leagues. You know, there's, you know, sometimes the, the AAA team will get kind of hamstrung with how many active pitches they have that can actually throw in the game. And then also you want to save some guys. So if the game got out of hand, uh, the manager at the time, Charlie Montoya, would use me to pitch. So yeah, I pitched a lot. I think one year, I want to say had I want to have, I had nine innings, I want to say. Uh, some along those lines, but yeah, I pitched a lot. I enjoyed it. I knew what I was. I was a third catcher at the at the AAA level, so whatever I can do to get, you know play and help the team was was great. But but yeah, I was used a lot. I enjoyed it. We had fun with it. And you know what? I think I held my own. I, I'm going to say I pitched really well, and and, and nobody can tell me different. No, I want to <laughs> know what you threw because I have never spoken to a catcher who doesn't have a knuckleball. Oh, I did not throw. I did not throw a knuckleball, David. I went straight gas at the top of the zone. I was. I was a four-seam carry guy before it was a hit factor. I had, I'm 5'8", so I already had elite, you know, vertical approach angle going to the plate. No, all kidding aside, I just honestly just threw straight balls. That's it. At the hitter, just threw strikes. Because I know when I was in the game, it was because of we were getting our butt kicked pretty good. 
So the last thing I wanted to do was mess around and not throw strikes and make the game longer. Um, a guy, my own teammates being behind me playing the field, being like, Albie, what are you doing? Just throw strikes, get the ball over the plate. So my only concern was honestly to get in and out of there, throw as many strikes as I could and just make sure that we, you know, everyone, I got, I left the game unscathed and make sure the the guys behind me were, were happy with the outing. Any notable punch outs? Yeah, I punched out Dan Johnson. I punched out Dan Johnson. We were teammates and, in Durham, and I punched him out um, when he was in. Uh, I think we played for Charlotte at the time, but that's the that's the first one that comes to mind is when I punched out Dan Johnson because he's a buddy. Because he's a buddy, yeah, 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 yeah. And plus, I knew how to pitch him. Like I said, you know, I I knew my stuff played at the top of the zone and how his swing path worked and what he was trying to do. I knew his his swing plane couldn't match my pitch flight, my ball flight. So I just knew I just got to get at the top of the zone, the top ten inches. And that was it. You couldn't hit it. <laughs> and there you went. Hey, and this was AAA. So I have a triple A AAA question, actually. I have heard often in the past year or so that the gap between AAA and the big leagues has never been higher. That really intrigues me, Craig, because there's more shuttling of players between AAA and the big leagues than ever before. Yeah. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, Dave, that's a really good question. And I think there's a lot of layers to it and it's complex. I'm going to try not to make it that way. That's a really good question. Now, I think where the, the gap is big, right? I think the gap is big from, from AAA to the big leagues. But the, the, it's such a big gap just because of the guys in the big leagues are really good, like really, really good ball players, and they're the best of the best. So to be on an everyday big leaguer, you got to be extremely, extremely talented work ethic, like all these little intangibles have to be off the charts to do that. And then even the guys that are that are platoon guys in the big leagues, they're really good. Like they do they do a lot of things elite. And the guys at the triple A level are just not there yet as far as like the talents there. They're definitely as talented as guys in the big leagues, but it's just the consistency, the game prep, their their routine day to day is a separator. And your your only goal as far as staff making sure like these players are ready to come up and contribute. So what you try to do is you try to make sure they, they know what they do really well and not to overwhelm them when they come up. And I think that's why our staff has done tremendously with our guys coming up, pitching, hitting, is these guys can come up and they're ready to compete. And it speaks volumes to our AAA staff, our, my, our PD side, Kyle Haynes, like all these, like a farm director, like it's such a marriage between the minor leagues and the big leagues when these guys are shuttling back and forth and make sure these guys are ready. Like we had a ton of guys help us last year, whereas Dom Leone started off in the minor league, Zach Littell, you know, Camilla Duval, you know, these guys were a huge impact for us. Then on the offensive side, Lamont Wade, Steven Duggar, like Joey Bach came up and, and helped us win a game. Like all these little things, you know, Tyler Estrada, I don't want to miss anyone because, you know, when you win 107 games last year, like a lot of things have to right, go right and a lot, of, a lot of people contribute. And those guys did. But, yeah, the gap is big for sure as far as producing and sticking in the big leagues. But these guys can come up and have the ability to come up and help us in spurts. And our guys like Lamont Wade and Dougie were up here for an extended period of time. And they have the, 
the maturity, the bandwidth, the capacity, and the work ethic to know that what needs to be done day to day to just compete at the big league level. And that's the one thing you can ask for these guys is just make sure they're ready to go out there and compete. And then also the staff and Cap did a phenomenal job of putting these guys in a chance to succeed and, and, it, and it showed last year. And some of the guys that you just mentioned, when the Giants signed them, I think probably a lot of fans in San Francisco and elsewhere probably thought, ah, okay, yeah, that's a guy. Is Farhan Zaidi a genius for, for finding some of these guys? <laughs> oh, man. Farhan is definitely a genius. He's highly intelligent. The, the great thing about, about Farhan is, is just how well he just communicates and works with others. I mean, he is the, the, the conversations that he has. He takes in every bit of information he can get to make, to make a really good decision. And, like in this game, like something that that's preached is just you just have to make one good decision at a time. And to make a good decision, what Farhan does well is that he takes in everyone's input, hears every side, both sides of the argument, and he just he just goes with it and he makes the best the best choice at the time. And whether that be an acquisition, you know, who who's in the bullpen that night, who has a good option, like all like the little things, like he just takes into account. And so as far as like him being a genius, absolutely. And so when he brings in someone in a trade or, you know, or someone that's just a free agent sign or uh, a waiver wire acquisition, you know, we know as a staff, like this guy can play some baseball and, and we're just ready just to kind of get our hands on him and work. And what I think what, what goes, what goes missing is the players that are being brought in for us they're just really really great guys like our clubhouse is filled with there's no bad eggs bad apples in our clubhouse and that's a credit to to farhan to to scott to you know holmesy on the amateur side zach manazian on a pro side pro acquisition side like they did a great job of identifying and acquiring one really talented ball players but also really good human beings you mentioned Joey Bart. Because he is in the 40-man, I think you're actually not allowed to speak about <laughs> him specifically. You know, thanks, MLB. <laughs> but you probably can talk in generality about just how hard it is to transition to the big leagues as a catcher. Yeah, I mean, it's so tough, especially for a young catcher. There's so many layers that go into to being a big league catcher. And like right now, it's this in this era right now, it's definitely the hottest it's been to be a big league catcher, in my opinion. And it's probably gonna not make you know the older generation of past catchers unhappy, as I make them happy. But with the with the receiving side of things, the emphasis on receiving and how it sways the game from a run value perspective and and count leverage standpoint, like every pitch matters. You really have to be dialed in on every single pitch because essentially every single pitch being thrown to you is a play, you know, is a ground ball to a shortstop because you don't know what pitch is going to sway the game, sway the count. So you need to have that focus on every single pitch. And then not to mention couple that with the blocking component of it. Like guys are throwing, throwing splitties at, you know, 89, 90 miles an hour, you know, ripping off breaking balls at 90 plus. It's, it's really, really difficult to, to catch nowadays. You know, then you got the throwing and then layer on, you know, the, the game prep side and, you know, getting these guys ready to, to game plan for the opposing hitters and, you know, knowing what your pitcher does. Like 
there's so much information out there and to get guys out or to think you can get guys out and how to attack them. So you want to, you really want to make it digestible for every catcher, but especially for a young guy. So I think it's, you know, what, what, you know, young catchers do well that come up in the game that have made impact is that they, they're exposed to it early. You know, the coaches do a good job as to assist them and support them in the development at the big league level. But ultimately, you know, like the, the catch you just talked about, you know, you guys, you have to take ownership on, on your own process and your own development. And that's something where the young catchers do that succeed at this level do well, you know, and, and it, the more exposure you can get to, to the big league staff and, you know, ultimately and how, how they go about the business and what they value, it's only going to help. Speaking of young catchers, Patrick Bailey is number three on our Giants top prospect list that uh, just came out recently. How much do you know about Patrick? I know a lot about I know a lot about Patty Bailey. It's such like twenty 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 was such a obviously a weird year for everybody, but even on the baseball landscape, there was no minor league season or anything like that. So when Patty got drafted, he actually came right to summer camp with us. So I had him. I had him fresh out of NC State, and Patty is very, very talented behind the plate. There's a lot to like. Um, you know, he's really, really gravitated towards the receiving and and how his body moves and how his glove works and and the focus and the preparation that it takes to to be a catcher. You know, he's great release throwing. Like, there's a lot of tools that he does that makes him a very intriguing prospect. And I think the 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 great thing about Patty Bailey is how he really cares about the pitcher's development, the guys he's catching. And that's a rare trait to have for a young guy. Like he, he wants the pitcher on the mound to succeed, not just to succeed in that game. Like, yes, he's trying to win, but he's also, he wants them to succeed and get to the big leagues and to have that maturity at such a young, young age in his development is so crucial and it's only going to help him as you grow throughout the minor leagues. And it's for me, it's always a pleasure to be around him, work with him. He's such a great kid. You know, he's down here at the camp now and just the conversations we have, it's, it's great. And he's, he's always curious. He's always looking to get better. He knows he can get better. Even when he has, he had a really good year last year defensively. So he's just always looking like what's next, what's next. So it's, he's, he's going to be really good. And, you know, and I feel like the Giants right now, looking at our prospects and what we have in the minor leagues, you know, like Holmesy and our international side and Kyle Haynes has done in the minor leagues is, you know, built a culture and, and have these guys to be ready for the big leagues. And it's going to be exciting with these guys coming up. Two more things. You knew that Buster Posey was good when you joined uh, the Giants organization. Now that you were, have been around him for uh, a year or two, is he even better than you imagined? Oh my God. I mean, leaps and bounds of what I thought. I mean, it's like on TV, you watch him catch and you watch him on video. Like I got the job digging in and you're just like, Oh, absolutely. Like he's athletic. Like all the, all the attributes jump at uh, all the physical a- attributes jump out at you. But when you're around him every day, it, it really, it, it really hits home to how one, how talented he is. But then also like how focused and diligent he is with his work, his prep, his consistency. It, it is really impressive. And, and for me, it, it influenced me as far as like what an everyday championship big league catcher looks like. 
but then also it filters down to the team where he's not a rah-rah guy as a leader, but he leads by example. He says, he says things, people listen, and he has such great feel and timing of when he speaks and when he needs to address a message and it's said and it hits. So to have that wherewithal is, was beneficial for us as a staff, but then also as a team. But yeah, being around Buster, it was, it was such, it was so great just to have conversations with them and then see him go and apply it in the game. Like usually be around guys, you kind of have to, to really like either like break a habit, like whatever the, whatever the case may be, but he has such physical and self-awareness. Like he just knew how to manipulate his body, how to, how to adjust to solve that problem in the game, whether it be whoever he's pitching from the receiving side to get that ball and adjust to that, that, that pitch flight or blocking or throwing like he he's always ready to make adjustments and I was very extremely extremely grateful for how he was able to let me coach him be present be curious like all those little things was was awesome to be around so he's he's definitely going to be missed it was very it was very fortunate to be around him and he's definitely left a mark on on the catching this organization and how the level and the goal standard and has been has been set for us hall of famer no doubt no doubt hall of famer for me i the his accolades like speak for themselves silver sluggers two comeback player of the years mvp three world series rings no catching no hitters perfect games i mean it just to me it, it just speaks it just speaks volumes you know and it's crazy to think that people think that he might not be a hall of famer it's so tough to catch in the big leagues. It's so tough to catch, period, no matter what level you're at. Just a physical grind that it puts on you. And he and he posted up. And I think what a lot of people, you know, don't take into account is, like, those those World Series runs. Like, he, he the games he caught, the five in a rows, the six in a rows, the multiple times he did it during those stretches was insane. And how that leaks into into November shortens up your off season. And then you have to go right back to ramp it up for, you know, middle of February for spring training. Like it just compacts everything as far as to even recover from the season. And the fact that he had those three runs and still performed and how we performed last year with, with taking off 2020, like to me, it's a, it's a no brainer hall of fame decision. Let's close with another hall of famer. Tom Brady just retired. You know, you're a Massachusetts kid. I, assu- I assume that uh, you have a great appreciation for what he accomplished. I had a, a, a yeah, <laughs> yeah, a great appreciation for what he had accomplished. And it, it, you know, it's you look back on it and just as you grow up and you get to watch greatness. And I'm very fortunate to watch greatness in my backyard with New England. You know what he did for. For the Patriots, I mean, the Patriots weren't really a football, big football town or presence, but what he did and how he elevated football in Massachusetts and New England was was unbelievable. And it hit home as far as just like his story. Like it's such a blue collar, Northeast story, whereas, you know, the 199th pick had to prove himself. He got a chance because the quarterback, Blue Bledsoe, who had a big contract, got all this money, was, you know, all the talent in the world. He got his chance because he got hurt, and he never looked back. And I feel like 
that's what anyone's looking for in life is just to get that one chance and make the most of it. And he did and never looked back. And just very, very fortunate to watch him just play football. And I think it was awesome to to watch the, the man in the arena on ESPN Plus that's out. They kind of, you know, pull the curtain back to see what actually went on. And that hit home even more just the preparation it takes to to be that elite for that long for that long time. Like it wasn't an accident that he's that forty four years old was still setting passing records and being the, the the season leader in touchdowns and passing yards, all that. It's just it's it's so great to watch him to watch him play and you know it and kind of looking back on it, it was something that I'm gonna tell my kids about, but very fortunate to watch him. And Tom Brady uh, was drafted by the Expos. We should uh, should not be forgotten. He could have been a baseball player. Yeah, he was a left-handed hitting catcher too. So it would be great. Like how everyone uses platoons now, he would have paired up great with a right-handed hitting catcher. You know, we. I mean, the way he the way he preps for football, you would figure he would prep the same way to to go into a game and attack hitters. So yeah, he definitely would have made a he would have made an impact in the baseball world as well. I think an Elbernaz Brady platoon at catcher probably would have been pretty fun, huh? Oh, now you're talking dirty, David. You're talking dirty <laughs> now. That would have been that would have been unbelievable. That that marriage, that pairing would have been would have been outstanding. I mean, Brady's like what six four, six five. I'm five eight on a good day. It would have been it would have been great to be with him. It would have been great. Actually, one uh, one last question. Uh, Super Bowl prediction. No Brady in the Super Bowl. No Rodgers. No Mahomes. So who wins, Bengals or uh, Rams? I'm going to ride with Joe Burrow. I think Joe Burrow, he, he has it. It's something special with, with what he's got going on. I mean, to see him in that, in, that, in that divisional game where he was just getting his butt kicked, sacked nine times, and the, and the young kid kept on getting up, Standing in, standing in the teeth of the defense, delivering the football. I mean, he is, he's something special. And Jamar Chase on the outside catching balls. I mean, you can't stop him. Like, he's a freak. He's a beast. But with that being said, like, the Rams, the Rams are talented. Like, they have, you know, all the acquisitions they made, bringing in Von Miller, um, you know, Aldo Beckham Jr., Cooper Cups, an animal. Stafford's finally, finally showing what he can do, getting out of Detroit. But I'll, I'm going to ride with Joe Burrow and the Bengals and, and that hot hand. I think that they upset him in, in L.A.'s home stadium. And because the Rams beat the 49ers, it was a safe question to ask. I think had the 49ers been in the Super Bowl, you would have been a little compromised with the question. Yeah, for sure. And also, that's, that's like the easy answer. I could have been like, yeah, because they beat the 49ers and really been been that. But, yeah, I definitely – I think it would have been awesome to have the 49ers in, in the Super Bowl. And their run was, was outstanding to watch. But – but yeah, I I definitely would have been a little little compromised if it was Ben Forty Niners and Joe Burrow, but I still would have went with I would have went with the Forty Niners. I definitely would have been a homer and, and ride with the boys. Right. So no Forty Niners in the Super Bowl, but we can look forward to uh, Giants in the World Series coming up this year, right? Oh, that's <laughs> that, that's the goal, man. That's that's the goal. I mean, just being in the playoffs last year and. You know, it was obviously the the juggernaut of the, the Dodgers, and you know Atlanta was their team was stacked, and and how they how they performed, especially in crunch time, was tough. But yeah, that's the goal to get back to the World Series. I I know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do what we can, and and kind of just take it day by day, and try to get better each day to kind of put one foot in front of the other. I know it's a lot of a lot of superlatives and and and, and hit phrases, but. 
it's real. I mean, to get to to get to that point and navigate a a, a season that's 162 games and and get into the tournament that is the that is the postseason. And that's all you can ask for. So, you know, hopefully we can get back there. We're gonna do all we can. I know I know Cap is is fired up to 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 get this season going and and to make that push. No, Cap is always fired up. And Craig, we are very fired up to have had you as a guest on uh, Fangraphs Audio. So thanks once again for coming on. No, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. And again, it's 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 always great. I love the content that Fangraphs puts out. It's part of my daily routine as far as seeing what's what's being put on there on Twitter and to kind of catch up on something I don't know or refresh on something. So I just want to thank you guys for everything you do for this game. No, thanks again. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Hello, listeners. This is Fangraphs Lead Prospect Analyst Eric Longenhagen. I'm coming to you around about noon from my kitchen island. I've got a millennial boiler maker here, which is a cup of coffee and a seltzer. And I'm joined by uh, <laughs> I'm joined by Ben Clemens. What's going on, Ben? Uh, not much. I'm doing some research into what people get paid in arbitration. So mm. you know, exciting. Is it exciting the week? I don't know yet. I'm still figuring out the names of all the players in baseball. So. I would say that I'm not maybe doing this the most efficient way. Yeah, I um, that giant data load I sent you a couple weeks ago with like all the sourced TrackMan data from the minor leagues from like the last half decade or so. That's also like a load of data that could use a like intense manual copy the player ID into the you know spreadsheets. Do every spreadsheet over the course of five years so that they can be correlated together. Like, yeah, there's the barrier. I yeah. can't imagine what that's like to sit and do. I Well, I guess I can because I've avoided doing it, but you're actually sitting and doing that. I am. It's, um, you know, it's going to be rewarding at the end. So I've at least got that going for me. What are you doing while you're, like, do you have a podcast on? Are you listening to music? What are you doing to sort of get into this weird machine-like zone? Yeah, classical music. Classical music. Okay. Do you have favorite composers or do you just kind of like spin the wheel? I mostly spin the wheel. Glenn Gould does Bach is a uh, a nice classic. He's like he he was a very famous like Canadian performer who was basically famous just for doing Bach, and so you can't really go wrong there. But I usually just start the radio on that and then let it go. Okay. Yeah, that's probably if I my closest version of that is I'll have like the lo-fi hip hop stuff going. Yeah, I used to do like a like chill step or any kind of right. like like less aggressive electronic music. And I switch back to that sometimes or podcast sometimes, but at the moment it's been classical music. I don't like things with words basically. Right. It's for sure. It can be detrimental. I'm sure that there's been all sorts of like actual research done on this. People have probably written long form articles about what like having a podcast or music with lyrics versus uh lyricless sound is like for working. I'm, pro- I'm sure that like complete silence is just the best thing for like focus right. and productivity <laughs> yeah but like for me it's like i'll range from anything like the things we've described to the bottom end of like old like old love line episodes <laughs> <laughs> like that is the trashiest like most distracting thing that will just like come across my my audio like menu and it'll just be like these people you know with the smoke detector batteries drained in their house like here's a here's a highlight reel of people who called into radio shows with their smoke detector battery dead in their house. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> just like the worst like 
worst possible imaginable thing. Yeah. <laughs> so what, is, what sort of baseball stuff has been going on in your brain the last little bit since we spoke? I've been thinking a lot. Like, I've always been very interested by pitchers who can't decide whether their four-seamer or sinker is better and kind of throw both. I've never, like, like, I understand that it's a nice change of pace, but I've been trying to figure out how people might change pace and why. And I've basically just been looking at different people who do it, looking at different times that they switch which pitches they use, just trying to get a sense for, like, if you have one guy who throws a four-seamer, and you have one guy who throws a four-seamer and a sinker, but the four-seamer is just the same, and the sinker is kind of unremarkable. Well, like, is that better? Is it worse? Why would it be better? Why would it be worse? And I don't know. Like, I'm not convinced I've found a lot of answers, but it's kind of interesting to look at. And clearly players like doing it, right? Right. Like, there's a lot of pitchers who throw both fastballs, even though one of them is worse than the other. And I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm very curious to figure out if I can find a, a through line. The one thing that I found that I thought was kind of interesting was you'd think you'd want to throw sinkers to ground ball hitters and four seamers to fly ball hitters, just kind of like lean into their tendencies and either get pop-ups or grounders, whichever they're prone to hit. And most pitchers do that because, you know, that's like an old pitching aphorism, right? If you throw it low to the guy who wants to hit it into the ground, he's going to hit it into the ground. But the Reds pitchers kind of did the exact opposite. Mm. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Like of the, I don't know, five pitchers who kind of extremely tried to throw sinkers to uh, fly ball hitters relative to their overall usage, Sonny Gray and Luis Castillo were like right at the top and they they were pretty extreme in terms of like just switching kind of against the conventional wisdom. So I don't know, like I, the Reds are smart at pitching, you know, that that's kind of their thing. And so I'm curious why they're doing that. Yeah, they're certainly, it's much more evident in the minor leagues because the guys who exhibit the traits that I'm about to discuss like as hitters are less likely to make the major leagues because it is kind of a problem but like there are definitely if sinkers are working down and to the arm side of the pitchers there are definitely hitters who what you know what if if it's right on right the matchup like can't get their barrel down and in to that place where those like sinking running two seamers live when they're moving the most this is like why mvp05 was so incredible like the pitches would move to your arm side when they're like located more to the arm side and not quite as much when you're locating them glove side like that's just true and so yeah you do have like this subset of hitters who really struggle to get their barrel to one part of the zone or the other whether it's like the very very top of the strike zone or the down and in portion of the hitting zone for that guy and so i could see playing matchups working two seamers in places where like your advanced scouting team, whatever that's comprised of, analysts or, you know, old school eyeball scouts, finding exploitable parts of the zone against individual hitters. And like, that is why you want to mix and match. Right. The ground ball hitter versus ground ball pitcher thing, etc. Like that would seem to be a thing that, and again, like just visual pattern recognition, like you see Tampa Bay doing it, like where they're kind of matching up hitters. Yeah. Like Yandy Diaz does not face ground ball pitchers generally. They've they're just not super interested in that. Right. Yeah. Yandy Diaz is a great example. Manny Margot and Joey Wendell. Margot is probably in the ground ball hitters bucket where I'd be interested to know how he performed against one or the other type of pitcher. 
just because he's never been able to actualize his power in games. Like that's part of the reason he's just become a great role player rather than a really good everyday player type of guy who we collectively on the prospecting side, like anticipate it would be a star type player. Yeah. And then like Wendell is often left in left, left matchups just because he's not there anymore, but like his ability to make contact just gives him a chance basically against platoon disadvantage. Yeah. And he's a pretty ground volley guy as well. Like, like above average for sure. And certainly for his career above average, he's been a little bit less ground volley as time has gone on. But you could see that like, you know, a lot of these like lefty guys that would theoretically give him trouble are at least kind of good with his bat path, maybe. I don't know. Like, there's also just like, he plays pretty good defense. But the Rays do seem to use him against lefties way more than they do their average uh, platoon type. And so I, I do wonder if there's some kind of fastball or breaking ball that they think he matches up well against and kind of let him go there. And we've talked about this before, like the low ball swinging hitters during this era of top of the zone fastballs becoming very popular and that type of fastball growing in popularity and focus among the analytically inclined teams before some of the, you know, like it's impacted by the pitcher's release height. Alex Chamberlain had a vertical approach angle piece go up on the site this week, which folks should read. But there's like you're mixing when you have a lower release point and therefore like a flatter vertical approach angle, which tends to work at the letters against hitters, your arm angle is going to be lower and you're going to get like side spinning action on that pitch most of the time. So right. you have like teams looking for a more specific subset of these guys, like low release height. And the uh, like the X axis point for the release is closer to the origin. That's how you get like your, you know, max laser with the Brewers is a rule five candidate who's sort of this way. Josh Colmetter's release point is probably quite high, but like that's close to the origin, right? Like it's close to. So here. is that like, um, like righties who stand on the first base side kind of? Yeah, so you can augment it depending on which part of the rubber you're standing on or where your landing leg falls. So like Ubaldo Jimenez is the example I give for this a lot of the time where most pitchers front foot, obviously the direction that they're striding is going to is going to vary, but most of them are going to stride in a straight line. Like you could draw a straight line from their back foot on the uh, the rubber to where their front foot lands to home plate and then you have like the ubaldo jimenez types who open their hips way way up and they're striding open to where their landing leg is landing like closer to the first base foul line got it so like flying open kind of right and they're they're able to like open their hips in a way that creates like a vertical arm slot and then that, obviously like the close the guys who stride closed are like the cross body guys who tend to have like a lower arm angle freddie peralta was that type of guy for the longest time i always think of andrew miller it's just like the yep. extreme crossfire and the, the location of the center field camera is going to change how we see it yeah and it changes the way we perceive like the explosiveness of the movement from righties and lefties when the camera is not dead center field. But yeah, like all of this type of stuff, it's it's interesting stuff. And there's like, I don't know how granular to be in terms of incorporating thinking like this into the prospect population, because like, do we really want to be identifying swing characteristics? Like at what age is it too early to really care about that stuff? The players are just going to grow and change. And Right. I wonder about that a lot with deliveries because, you know, they can change. And like now that teams have a more quantitative way of knowing what kind of deliveries they like i think it's reasonable to expect them to change more often 
you know, in 2005 or something, you're like, oh, this guy's being effective, but we don't know why. Or like, eh, it's something to do with his delivery, but I don't know, it's just, it's deceptive. But now if you can kind of get the, the parts of it, like, oh, hey, like having a vertical arm angle is helpful and oh, having a low release point is helpful. So like this guy, like he's dropping and driving, but if we could like change his landing, like his landing foot or whatever, then we could change the qualities of the pitch. I feel like teams are much more able to do that now than they used to be. So if you look at a, what a guy does now, it's maybe less useful to know what he'll do in the future. Yeah, integrating your player dev department with what's happening in scouting can facilitate some of this stuff because this like, you know, demands that you ask yourself the question, okay, well, who can be changed? Like who has all the other underlying stuff that I care about and also has the ability to be changed so that that stuff is like unlocked in a meaningful way? relatively soon and then like what traits are we looking for as scouts like is there a general athleticism is there a mechanical flaw that we can care about that like instead of looking at looking at it like it's detrimental look at it as an opportunity for something to be changed like if someone has a long arm action there's plenty of precedent now for like we've seen lots of guys with longer arm actions shorten it up find some amount of like strike throwing consistency that way and so if i'm seeing a guy who i otherwise really really like in the minors or on the amateur circuit and he's got a long arm action it's not necessarily a bad thing as much as it is an opportunity to like change this guy but you don't want to like get him hurt you know by changing his delivery a lot of this stuff is easier said than done so yeah like oh just uh just just stride a little bit shorter and have your arm finish six inches higher. Like, I don't exactly think, or like, have your release point six inches higher. I'm not sure anybody could do that, right. like, just easily. It's where you get into the problems that player dev faces, right? Like, how to get an athlete to buy into that and then enact it mechanically is very difficult. Like, what tools for training are you using that... Right. unlock that type of stuff are you know what are you doing in a bullpen on your backfield with like getting the athlete to stride in the direction that you're trying to get him to yeah. stride in it's really hard to find people who can break down the data like this and also do all that type of stuff yeah like talk to the pitchers about it in a way they understand do you think athletic pitchers have just an advantage in doing this kind of stuff yeah i think if you look at the big league pitching population especially the starters There is a certain type of athleticism and oftentimes like a certain type of body composition that accompanies their ability to hold mid upper 90 stuff over the course of 160 plus innings. Like Zach Wheeler looks a certain way. Max Scherzer, even though his delivery is weird, like he is built a certain way. Garrett Cole and Kevin Gossman and Aaron Nola and like Sandy Alcantara, they're all built a certain way yeah. and have and like all, a certain level of athleticism and strength about them. Yeah. Everyone you've named there also seems to be able to like, like they're really athletic. Like they repeat their deliveries really consistently. And I think at least, and I wonder to what extent, like that matters more than we think in kind of like minor league prospects or it's like, Oh, this guy, like if we decide that his delivery needs to be a little bit different to like kind of work, no, oh, he can actually handle it. Whereas a guy who's like, I mean, I can't think of a great example, but I bet you there are people who, just don't have that and like right therefore struggle it's hard to i was often early on conflating a certain type of grace and mechanical ease 
with repeatability. So like the classic example of this is Yadier Alvarez with the Dodgers, Mm -hmm. who, you know, at one point was the highest ranked pitching prospect in baseball for me, like was higher than Cody Bellinger on the Dodgers list. And then Neftali Feliz was a version of this too, where you see this guy throwing as hard as he does with the sort of ease that he does, but he doesn't have great tactile feel for release. And so the command portion of this is like behind and you're just betting on this sort of grace and, you know, athleticism to, to eventually dial in some of that other stuff. Didn't really work there. It didn't really work there. Yeah. There are lots of examples of that. And then, you know, what foundation you want for your pitching prospects at this point is, is debatable. So there are like everyone that Cleveland has drafted over the last couple of years, Trenton Denholm and... Doug Nikhazy and Tommy Mace, like these are college pitchers who, in the traditional sense, the velocity piece of the puzzle is theoretically like done growing. They're 21, 22-year-old guys. They're sitting about 92, 93. In Nikhazy's case, it was like 88 to 91 at Ole Miss, but it's four distinct pitches with command. And they're just making these guys throw harder. They're just making Shane Bieber throw harder. Trenton Denholm was up to 97 during instructs, kind of out of nowhere. Doug Nikhazy was like sitting more 93, which is hugely important. You know, Xavion Curry. So do you want a foundation of like, do I really want to draft Chase Petty out of, you know, a New Jersey high school when this kid's already throwing 97 with like non-traditional looking stuff? Or do I want someone who has this very, this foundation that is vanilla, but like, you know, looks more like a starter and I can teach him to throw harder because that just seems to be the easiest thing to do anymore. Right. Yeah, it is interesting to think about because like it really does depend. Like it can determine a lot about how you pick your various players. And I, I mean, I have no clue what the answer is, but the more I'm looking at like how much little parts of your delivery can affect like the way that the pitch looks as it crosses the plate like the more it seems like it matters oh yeah that's the other thing too there is the high speed video portion of this where you can actually see what the pitcher is doing on release that's another one where if the player dev group is which is going to be using this high speed video often right for like developmental purposes, if they are part of the decision-making process in the draft room, you can see on the high-speed video who does and doesn't have clear idea of like how to grip the baseball or how to release the baseball. And sometimes it's really shocking how raw the players are. Uh, there was a high school pitcher named Therese Butcher who just had like no, he was throwing in the mid-90s as a high schooler, uh, went to University of Tennessee. I think he might have transferred out of there since then, but um just you clearly see on the high speed when he was in high school, like this guy's got no real idea <laughs> how to hold the baseball. He's thrown really hard. Like it almost made him more interesting than some of the other guys. Right. And you just say, oh, I'll give you a grip and then you'll be great. Right. There's just a bigger, there's a more obvious gap between what he was able to do right then and what you'd hope he'd be able to do with someone teaching him like how to hold the baseball. That's what Camilo Doval was too. Where, like, he was on the backfields. The Giants, we were lucky enough, you know, the Giants, whoever's working the TrackMan laptop at their old minor league facility was just, like, standing in the scout section with you. Like, I would be shoulder to shoulder with them and just look down at the, <laughs> at the TrackMan laptop after every pitch would come in. And, like, Camilo Doval's, the his fastball shape 
and like tilt was so wildly inconsistent that you were just like, this guy clearly has no real idea like how to throw the baseball consistently but if it ever clicks like some of the raw numbers here like the spin and and like you know the velocity was kind of ridiculous <laughs> like towards the high end of the pitching population you're just like if this if they ever figure out how to get this guy to do any of this consistently then he's going to be an absolute monster and then it just you know in the middle of 2021, after waiting for it to happen for like four years, it seemed to happen for that guy. So there's just stuff like this just happening all the time. Yeah, that's very interesting, too, because like my predisposition is to not buy it. Like he just has no command. Right. And I just like I watch him pitch and I'm like, I don't know, like I, I don't see how this guy can like repeatedly demonstrate command. It doesn't seem like it's there. But if I'm wrong and he can, then it's like, I mean, it's going to be really good. I don't know how to handicap that. In terms of like, do you think he'll be able to repeat it? I don't know. Yeah. Is it recency bias? We're by definition talking about a volatile relievers on their own are just inherently volatile. You right. know, and this guy was has been wild for basically his whole life. And then the back half of twenty twenty one, he looked like one of the best ten or fifteen relievers on the planet. And for sure some of these guys just click, right? Like at some at some points Corbin Burns has been kind yeah. of wild. And then it you know yeah he then he wasn't so pitching is tough because it's so easy in some respects to quantify people's stuff you know the data portion of it does give you a much clearer picture of it like it represents a bigger piece of the player evaluation pie than the data piece does for hitters and so in some ways it's easier to understand the pitching population when you're prospecting and then at other times like they get hurt and right. they develop very quickly because the player dev tools that we have to augment pitching are just further ahead than hitters by like, you know, a long shot. And so like in that way, it is much, much more difficult to project the pitchers here on the scouting side. Yeah, this is um this is a slight change, but kind of not really. So Matt Whistler was great in 2020. And then he was awful on the Giants. You know, he signed a, a solid free agency deal and then was just unusable. And the Giants just released him. And then he was awesome on the race. He was like incredible. <laughs> and those are just, those are three things that happened consecutively. And basically what happened is that he lost his slider delivery point with the Giants. And so a lot of his sliders were just not moving and they were just getting crushed. And so then he was trying to pitch around the fact that he knew his slider was backing up too much. So he was throwing way too many fastballs. Like he was really unwilling to get down in counts because then he knew that he couldn't throw a slider for a strike or and if he did throw a slider for a strike, it was going to be a cement mixer. And it's like, well, okay. So I would think that once he loses it, I'm like, oh, I, I have a new evaluation of him. He just suddenly had the command for last year. And now he's lost it. And he's a useless pitcher. Or not useless, but like he's replacement level. I can cut him. And that's what the Giants did. And then he goes to the Rays and all of a sudden, like, I don't know, he moved his hand an inch, but he consistently did it. And then the pitch started spinning again. It just seems impossible to, to make that evaluation like, right. how did the Rays know that they could fix his delivery point? And did they know? Did they? Right. Yeah. Or were they just taking a bet that, like, sometimes guys lose it for a little bit? Trying to put any kind of quantitative bent to that is, uh, I mean, I've never really been able to. <laughs> yeah. It's um, knowing enough about the Rays, like, they have, over the last couple of years, they tend to cycle through interesting relievers on the fringe of their 40 man pretty consistently. And it's just possible from sheer number of trials that they, you know, lucked into tweaking this guy back 
for the better. Right. That there are a whole host of other guys who that have passed through Tampa Bay over the last couple of years, you know, Edgar Garcia or whatever, just through injuries and COVID stuff, like the guys who have passed through the Rays bullpen over the last couple of years has it's it's a lot of fringe names who they seem to be able to to make better. Even like looking at their projected bullpen right now, Peter Fairbanks is the only traditional like power late inning guy. Well, they used to have a ton of these guys. Right. And now it's like, you know, Brooks Raley, who's another one where seemed to be augmented for the better by changing his breaking ball usage in 2020. Like he was not good yeah. initially for the Reds and then went to Houston. They shifted. And again, like we think the Reds are pretty good at this. Uh, right. Eric Jagers. They had Kyle Bodie there who left. But like the people who are doing pitching dev with Cincinnati, like pretty clearly have demonstrated they know how to make pitchers better over the course of their careers. And like Brooks Raley was there and yeah. they couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the Giants, the Giants are not, you know, known as being bad at developing pitching. They made a right. bullpen out of like basically sticks and it was great. And like they turned a bunch of starters into awesome pitchers and they broke Matt Whistler. I think that the lesson here is like some of it is just about random individual fits yeah. Finding the right pitching coach, finding, you know, just matching them up with the right individual. And then there's just little, you know, Matt Whistler might have like closed his hand in a car door or something like that. You know what I mean? Or like had a yeah. hangnail or like a weird. Or like he bought a bed when he moved to San Francisco and it wasn't that comfortable. So he was right. like waking up a little bit off every day. Yeah. And when those such minor little variations impact how the ball is coming off your fingertips you know yeah. the the relative humidity in san francisco like it could be any of that stuff yeah i'll give you an, actually a, an example that i really enjoy a friend of mine lives kind of down by the stadium and her fire alarm went off at like one in the morning one night and she walks out in the building and gets in the elevator and she sees this like really tall guy wearing giants gear and then she realized it's evan longoria and like that's just where he lives during the season is like you know a, a kind of normal apartment near the near the stadium but like what if their fire alarm goes off somewhat frequently in the middle of the night he's probably annoyed but like then he probably just plays worse and you'd be like oh, i can't i'm looking at the stats and i can't figure it out well yeah he was waking up at two in the right. morning too often yep it is kind of interesting do you have um anything coming up that folks should be on the lookout for oh i, I will say i was nominated for a saber award for i think modern baseball research cool <laughs> It's called Contemporary Baseball Analysis. So vote. Uh, the voting is this week. It's on Fangraphs as well as on Baseball Prospectus, Saber, and the IBWAA site. Yeah, all of the nominees in this category are very deserving. It's me, Rob Arthur, Eno Saris, a sports journal, and uh, Cameron Grove, the, the pitching bot guy on Twitter. It's a, like, it's a bunch of people who would all be deserving uh, winners. I have no expectation that I'm going to win, but yeah, it, I think it'd be very cool if I did, and please vote for me. I, I had a lot of fun writing analytical articles this year, and it's a nice uh, nice reward. I have no clue if there are actually any rewards. I kind of think no. <laughs> but uh, it'd be a nice feather in my cap. Yeah, it would be nice. I think that you deserve it. So I'm going to go vote for you. Folks should go read the work of all the nominees to best understand our game. More prospect list stuff will be coming out from me. Folks should go over to the YouTube channel and click on uh, an episode of Yeoman's work if you're into... Oh, you're doing more? Nice. I'm going to... Yeah, I'm getting back into to doing it 
while sort of peeling back some of the process stuff. So like it's a mix of the Fangraphs video archive as it relates to the prospect lists that are coming out, plus like snapshots of our behind the scenes process as we go. So uh, the Giants list came out this week. My byline is not on the Giants list. I did help with the Giants list, but Tess and Kevin wrote in its entirety, which is nice. It's the first list at the site that hasn't had my name on it in like a very long time. So some of the this episode has like snapshots of our decision making process at the time combined with like international and draft stuff. I'll be going through like the different pods of lists kind of saying like, you know, here's what went into this. So the next group that, you know, after this draft international stuff, the next Yeoman's Work episode will be like Cubs, A's and Angels as the East Valley pod plus like whatever it is the group is working on at the time that the list or that the episode comes out. So I don't know. I'm experimenting. It's, it's fun to try to make my lousy video editing software, like the default windows video editing software and my complete lack of knowledge of any of this stuff other than how to like import my video and stuff. Like I kind of have to wrangle this into what I want it to be. And I think that that makes it fun at the end. So prospect lists, yeoman's work, Ben Saber Award. Support the site via your Fangraphs subscriptions. Uh, you can find a link to on our brand new looking homepage, typically at the very top in a banner. And thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. For Ben Clemens, I've been Eric Longenhagen. Thank you, listeners. Talk to you soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Craig Albernaz for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider recommending it to a friend or two. It helps us out. And in addition to that Fangraph shop, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the things we have going on at the website, free to your inbox every weekday. That will do it for us this week. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.